0: Meanwhile, recorded live in the Lava Lamp Lounge, it's Somewhere in Between, a Radio scene. News, music, culture, stories, and more. This show is what we make of it, and hopefully you'll join us in the fun, too. Now let's get started. And Welcome! To the final chapter of our story. It's issue 38. The first inauguration, part three. It wasn't just that the inauguration happened on a different day over 200 years ago. A lot of things were different when a new president was being ushered into the world. These days, we have a presidential ball almost immediately after the inauguration, but uh, inaugural balls were not a common practice at the beginning. There happened to be one a week later. It was meant more as to say, Oh, hey, cool, you're the president, Uh, congratulations, than uh, born out of any kind of tradition. Washington did give an inaugural speech of some kind that... uh, certainly was uh, well-received, and some of the other traditions were in place. In fact, you can even see a film version of this as depicted on the miniseries John Adams. It gets a few of the details a little off, but it basically shows you what happened. And it's strange to imagine that there is a way that you could uh, actually portray this for audiences because this does to one degree, feel like it was some sort of ancient history. But when you think about it, these were just people. Sure, they lived 200 years ago, but they still have to go through life just like everyone else has to.
1: Blood-stained footprints in the snow. Valley Forge, winter of 1777-78. Out of the despair, out of the hunger, out of the blundering and the bickering and the intrigue, an army emerged. When they left Valley Forge that spring, they were like slavering wolves, ready to fall on anything that stood in their path. At their head rode the fox hunter, his eyes tired and his heart heavy. The enemy, the sleek fox, moved up out of Philadelphia and up through New Jersey, and they tracked him. At Monmouth... The hunter overtook the fox. He was everywhere. Lafayette.
2: All over the
3: battlefield. I never beheld so superb a man. At one moment, he went down in a heap with his white horse, and we thought he had been killed. But he stood up, and Billy Lee, his servant, brought up another mount, a chestnut mare. He spurred right into the thick of the fighting again.
1: After the battle... General Lee, who had deserted his troops in the midst of the action, was court-martialed. He said he had tried to save the main body of his men in a hopeless situation. But the rumor was that he had tried to lose the battle deliberately. Sold out to the British. The war dragged on to its weary conclusion now. Battles were won and lost. The British enthusiasm waned. And it was a three-year process of wearing down which came to a smashing climax at Yorktown. On Friday, October 19, 1781, the British Army surrendered after six years of war.
3: It was a warm October day.
1: John Hyde Preston, in his book A Short History of the American Revolution, describes the surrender at Yorktown.
3: Washington rode out on the right, very superb on his big white battle charger, his boots polished, his hair finely powdered. Lafayette, at the head of his famous light infantry, was having a hard time making his horse behave, jabbering in French and laughing very much at everything that was said to him. Over on the left, near the banks of the York River, stout old Papa Rochambeau bobbed along proudly at the head of his dapper French legions. The country people stood gaping. But in the bay, the riggings of the tall ships were full of singing sailors. Then there was a blast of music on the autumn air, growing louder. Louder the surrendering army appeared. The long red and blue columns marched by, laying their flags on the ground, stacking their guns.
2: It was all over.
3: I can truly say... Washington.
4: ...that the first wish of my soul is to return speedily into the bosom of that country which gave me birth. And in the sweet enjoyment of domestic happiness in the company of a few friends... To end my days in quiet. But I shall be called from this stage. This is the last letter I shall ever write. Washington. While in the service of my country. The hour of my resignation is fixed at twelve this day.
5: He was intent on having Christmas dinner at home. Tobias Lear,
1: who kept Washington's private account.
5: On the 23rd, he was in the saddle again, headed back from whence he came. He took with him the following items, which I entered in the cash book. A locket, five shillings and five pence. Three small pocketbooks, one and ten; three sashes, one and five. Dress cap, two and eightpence; Hat, three and ten. Handkerchief, one pound. Children's books, four and six. One quirly gate, one and six. One fiddle, two and six. Four quadrille boxes, one pound, seventeen shillings and sixpence. The gifts were for the children and Mrs. Washington.
6: Such times as there was then, gentlemen.
1: Old Cully, Mrs. Washington's family servant.
6: Such times, I tell you. It was almost like the days when he came courting Miss Martha laughing and singing and him bouncing the little ones on his knee and dancing with the ladies and folks coming in carriages from miles around to wish him well and shake his hand. And in the morning he was up at four o'clock and he took his man, Billy Lee, and they rode out on the farms, and they were smiling like there was some big joke all the time. But I tell you, sir, I seed Miss Martha look at him sometimes quick-like and I could tell she was worried about him. Seems like he was always going, like a big clock that can't unwind. Up at four, in the saddle, I remember when Dr. Craig and Master Bushrod come in saying they couldn't keep up with him. He'd started his horse and drove her till she liked to drop from it. On April 30th, 1789,
1: he took the oath of office as first president of the United States. My movements to the
4: chair of government will be accompanied by feelings not unlike those of a culprit who is going
1: to the place of his execution. A year before, he had refused an offer of the crown by Colonel Nicola, one of his officers.
2: He called me into his headquarters at Newburgh, Washington Secretary Jonathan Trumbull. I remember it well because he was almost trembling to hold back his rage. I have the original notes right here in my folio. Sir, it is with a mixture of great surprise and astonishment I have read the sentiments you submitted for my perusal. Be assured, sir. No occurrence in the course of the war has given me more painful sensations. If I am not deceived in the knowledge of myself, you could not have found a person to whom your schemes are more disagreeable. Let me conjure you. If you have any regard for your country, banish these thoughts from your mind.
7: The part I acted in the American Revolution is well known. This is Tom Paine speaking. I shall not hear repeated. It is time, though, sir, to speak the undisguised language of historical truth. The person addressed is President Washington. You slept away your time in the field till the finances of the country were exhausted, and you have but little share in the glory of the final event. You commenced your presidential career by swallowing the grossest adulation. If you are not great enough to have ambition... You are little enough to have vanity. John Adams, he said, and John, it is known, was always a speller after places and offices. John has said that the presidency should be made hereditary in the family of Washington. He did not go so far as to say the vice presidency should be made hereditary in the family of John Adams. The character which Mr. Washington... Has attempted to act in this world as a sort of a nondescribable chameleon thing called prudence. It is in many cases a substitute for principle and is so nearly allied to hypocrisy. As to you, sir, treacherous to private friendship, for so you have been to me, and that in the day of danger, and a hypocrite in public life, the world will be puzzled to decide whether you are an apostate. Or an imposter.
1: And so they turned on him one by one Hamilton, Jefferson, Adams, isolating him in the presidency, enraged at his treaties, at his unwillingness to have America drawn into the French conflict, at his dogged conservatism and determination to proceed slowly and cautiously.
4: The attack on me is like a cry against a mad dog couched in such indecent and exaggerated terms as could scarcely be applied to a Nero or a pickpocket.
1: A few stood by him Franklin, who was aging rapidly, and Lafayette, and Dr. Craik, and some of his old generals, like Knox.
4: I care what they think. It pains me deeply that they desert me. But I am determined to listen to my heart. And I know my own integrity. We need 20 years of peace. We need a strong national government. We need neutrality and a commercial treaty with England. Jefferson opposes me. Well, let him. They say I betray my old comrades, the French. Let them talk. My heart answers to me.
1: On September 17, 1796, he published his farewell address to the people after serving two terms as president. When John Adams was elected second president, Washington walked through the streets
2: to his home to congratulate him. When he approached the house... John Adams. When he approached the house, an immense crowd followed him, moving in total silence. When he reached my door, I greeted him. And then he turned around and looked out on the crowd of people who had followed him. I honestly don't think he expected it. It is my belief that he felt he had been deserted by all his fellow Americans, instead of a few in high office. Did they tell you he was a cold person? I tell you no one ever saw him so moved. The tears rolled unchecked down his cheeks. He was 64 years old, and I do believe it had taken him all those years to learn to cry.
1: On Sunday, December 8, 1799, he contracted a sore throat. He chose to ignore it and spent the day marking trees for cutting and inspecting the farm. That night, he wrote some letters, read the newspapers, and went to bed. Next morning, his friend, Dr. Craig, was called, along with two other physicians. He was bled and given molasses and vinegar. The bleeding weakened him, but he was bled again, as was the medical procedure.
5: About five o'clock, Dr. Craig came into the room. Tobias Lear, his bookkeeper. The general said, Doctor, I die hard, but I am not afraid to go. The doctor pressed his hand, but could not utter a word. About ten o'clock, he made several attempts to speak. At length, he said, I am just going. Have me decently buried. I bowed assent, for I could not speak. He looked at me again and said, Do you understand me? I said, Yes. And he said, Tis well. About ten minutes before he expired, his breathing came easier. Dr. Craig came to the bedside, and the general's hand fell from his wrist. I took it in mine and pressed it to my bosom. Dr. Craig put his hands over his eyes, and then he expired without a struggle or a sigh. Mrs. Washington, who was sitting at the foot of the bed, asked in a firm voice, Is he gone? I could not speak. Tis well, she said, in the same voice. All is now over, and I shall soon follow him. I have no more trials to pass through.
3: I think I knew General Washington, intimately and thoroughly. Thomas Jefferson. His mind was great and powerful, without being of the very first order. It was slow in operation, but sure in conclusion." Hearing all suggestions, he selected what was best, and certainly no general ever planned his battles more judiciously. He was incapable of fear, meeting personal dangers with the calmest unconcern. His integrity was most pure, his justice the most inflexible I have ever known. No motives of interest or consanguinity of friendship or hatred were able to bias his decision. He was indeed, in every sense of the word, a wise, a good, and a great man.
1: In Bath, England, Sally Fairfax, widowed and childless, clinging to a letter she had received from George Washington only two months before his death.
7: (laughs) Un malheur ne vient jamais seul. On n'estime jamais une chose assez...
1: These are the words she wrote in her Bible. Sorrow never comes singly. We never value a thing rightly till it is lost.
2: The preceding program was transcribed.
0: And that was the story of George Washington, and specifically his inauguration, which happened on this day, over 200 years ago. George Washington, of course, being our first president, but also a bit of an enigma. And uh, I, for one, didn't know as much as I thought I did. This was quite a revelation and uh, very interesting to me, so. Yeah, hopefully you got something out of it as well. It's not exactly an accident that I get to speak with people who I'm quite interested in and I'm quite enamored with. So when it happens, it shouldn't surprise me. But every once in a while, I get to speak with somebody who really kind of does a number on me. Causes me to rethink a lot of the things that I had in my mind in terms of, where my inspirations come from, what my goals are, where I want to move in the world and figure out as far as the future. It's strange because you don't always have reminders of that in everyday life. Most of the time we just kind of sit around and uh, try to figure out what to do each day rather than think about these long-term plans or the context for why we do what we do now and how we got to where we are. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. I recently got to speak with somebody who uh, had this kind of effect on me and certainly I've been kind of wondering where my place in the world is and what it means to have accomplished something like that. It's not exactly like I, you know, climbed Everest or, you know, something uh, similar. I mostly just kind of spoke to a childhood hero. Someone that I actually didn't know I was a hero of when I was a child. So, who's to say how this is going to affect me or what I'm going to make of all of this? In a lot of ways, it was just talking to another writer about the world of writing, and how hard it is, and what is and isn't easy to accomplish, even when you know how to do it, and you've been doing it for years. I wonder sometimes, when I have conversations like this, if this is the 100th time they've been through some similar situation, or if it's novel. Something that doesn't happen every day. Suffice it to say, we are going to take May off. I think we've earned it. I think uh, we've done a lot of good work here in the last 12 issues. And I'd like to kind of just have a little fun, if you know what I mean. Today is my birthday after all. So why not? We'll uh, catch up again in June and hey that's uh, the one year anniversary for our program so we'll probably have a lot to say then about where we have been and where we want to go next and then uh, that puts us on the path for a summer full of fun what can I say except that this is a ton of fun and let's keep on keeping on That's going to do it for us this week here on the program. Somewhere in between, a radio zine. The First Inauguration, Part 3 of 3. Issue 38, contained, The First Inauguration, originally aired on the program, Biography and Sound, on July 5th, 1955. I honestly can't believe that there is a holiday in the United States called Honesty Day originally founded by M. Hirsch Goldberg. It is supposed to be dedicated to straightforward communication in politics, relationships, and education, and is meant to promote radical honesty. Personally, I'd be lying if I said I didn't wish more people celebrated this holiday. This episode was produced by Austin Rich in the Lava Lamp Lounge and was assembled using only the finest in 20th century technology. In the long-standing tradition of most zines, there is an open submission policy here. If you have a story, music, or poetry that you'd like to send in or read, or just want to be a part of the show, why not drop a line to austinrich at gmail.com? That's going to do it for us this week. You guys are wonderful. You guys are beautiful. And without you, there would be no program. Be seeing you.